All right, grab your Bibles, get them out. The Mexican magician said he would do a wonderful trick and disappear. He said, uno, dos, and then he disappeared without a trace. Yeah, all right, thank you, thank you. I just brought you up, now we're going to bring you back down, okay. All right, grab your Bibles. Um, let's see, where can you end up? Oh, geez. You could go to Leviticus 18, that's where we'll spend some time, and Matthew 19 is a good place. Um, today is the last message in the series uh, that we've been in on faith and sexuality. Um, the Lord put this on my heart a couple months ago um, to do a series on faith and sexuality. It's like not something I really was excited to preach on, but I really felt the Lord saying like, hey, Kurt, is this your church or my church? I'm like, it's your church, Lord. Because um, how do I know if it's my church, then I have to come up with everything. And if it's his church, then... He provides, and he comes up with everything. So um, this is Jesus' church, and I, he, I felt that he led me to do a series on faith and sexuality. Today is part five, the final message in the series. Um, if you've missed any of those messages, um, you can go back and listen to them on the, our podcast or on YouTube. We have them there. Listen to them all if you missed any. Um, today, I want to close this series by talking about something I have never devoted an entire message uh, since we've started the church. I've never devoted an entire message to this subject. Um, I want to talk about same-sex attraction. Never devote an entire message to that. I, and in the past, I have. And uh, when I was a, co a college pastor, um, I, I preached on that. But I want to talk about uh, same-sex attraction. What does the Bible have to say about that? How do we as a church um, uh, uh, handle that? So I want you to know, as I have um, prayed about this topic, again, this is the topic where it's like, Lord, are you sure you want me to do this? And the Lord's like, do it. So I just want you to know, I'm trying to be the Lord's obedient servant up here. <laughs> As I've prayed about this topic, I want you to know that I deeply feel the tension between presenting truth and offering hope, mercy, empathy towards people. I have discovered that just in, I've listened to lots of sermons, lots of teaching, really dove into this. I've discovered that I could spend at least two weeks or more on the theology side, on the, the truth side. And I've discovered that I could spend two or more weeks on the empathy side, on the, on the mercy side of this subject, the compassion side of this subject. Um, historically, I will say this, and I think this, um, you would probably agree, historically, I don't believe the church uh, in general has not done well at doing both of these when it comes to this subject. Some churches have done well at presenting truth. Some churches have done well at uh, being compassionate, showing mercy. And um, how many know that um, we have to do both? Um, like, it's not love to like, let's just never talk about it. That's not love, right? Love is like, we're going to talk about this, but we're also going to have mercy, compassion, empathy, and, and for people. So I want you to know, I don't have an entire month to perfectly balance these two important objectives. Uh, my goal in the limited time that we have is to attempt to do justice at both mercy and truth. Um, what, what, what you need to know is that uh, what I'm going to preach today cannot be completely comprehensive and cannot do justice to both of those ideas completely. Um, so in that sense, this message is incomplete. But hopefully, what I want this to be for us as a church is part of an ongoing conversation, and I want to invite you 
into that conversation to be part of this conversation. What do we want? We want to be truthful. We want the word of God. We want to be merciful. We want to be compassionate to people. And the result, I believe, will be that people will be loved. We will love people well. We will love one another well. We will love other people well. Um, As a church, we have uh, 10 core values. Um, You can see these on our website. Uh, We have 10 core values, or culture statements, as we like to call them. And then we have nine um, essential beliefs. Those are separate from the core values. I want to highlight one core value, and I want to highlight one essential belief. So here's the core value I want to highlight. It's core value number three, which is this. We honor people. Every person is valuable and created in the image of God. Jesus paid the ultimate price to redeem every individual. We love, honor, and treat all people with dignity. That, that innocent, sacrificial lamb that Leslie just mentioned, which is Jesus, he was, he was um, sacrificed on, be, on behalf of humanity. He died for everyone. So regardless of someone's backgrounds, uh, their background, their beliefs, struggles, um, we believe that they were created, we are all created in the image of God, and intrinsically, therefore, have value. The fact that the Bible says that that God made mankind in his image and in his likeness intrinsically means that every human being has value. So when we talk about people with uh, same-sex attractions, valuing them, loving them, empathizing with them, that's like... That's not, that's not the question. Like, that's not on the table. Like, that's an of course. That's uh, an obvious. Of course, whether your struggle is same-sex attraction, gluttony, or heterosexual sins, a, personable, a person is valuable and worthy of love no matter who they are, no matter what. If you're like me, and I, I, I don't want to, if you're like me, I, I don't want to give the impression that, like, I just preach this and, and don't have interactions with many different types of people. If you're like me, um, you know many people who have same-sex attractions, many people who are are openly gay or or privately struggling uh, to be gay. Um, Many of them whom are very nice people. So when I talk about this, this is not, of course, an indictment on any person or their their personality. um, I have many family members who I am close to who are um, in that boat. I've had coworkers in the past, neighbors, um, friends who have who've been both full on in the lifestyle and been delivered from the lifestyle. And so maybe you're watching and maybe you're right here in this room. But we constantly want to try to adhere to the core value that every person is um, valuable. So that's the core value I want to highlight. The belief I want to highlight is, is this one. It's the first one listed in our beliefs. It is the Bible. The Bible is the infallible and only authoritative word of God. God wanted his plan um, of salvation and his instructions for holy living to be made plain for all of humanity. Therefore, he inspired the holy uh, scriptures to be inspired to be written. Um, The ultimate authority on any subject is the Bible, is the word of God. The Bible is going to be our final authority of whether or not a particular subject, a particular practice is or is not something that God wants for our lives. I love this. Proverbs 30, verse 5. This is something we can just rely on. It says this, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. We can rest knowing that the word of God, the Bible, is true. Even if it doesn't make sense, and at times, even if you don't agree. How many have read a story or or read a principle, and you're like, I don't know if I agree with that. You know what I'm saying? 
um, even if you don't agree or it doesn't make sense, we can rest in it knowing that it is the word of God and it is true. But look at the promise here. When we do um, lean not on our own understanding, and in all of your ways acknowledge the Lord and he will direct your paths. When we lean not on our own understanding, look at this. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. He's, he, you can hide yourself under the shadow of his wings, knowing that his word is true and he will take care of you. Amen? Amen. So that's the word of God. We, we, we have uh, tremendous value for every person because they intrinsically have value, and the Bible is true, and it is our ultimate authority. I want to start with a couple uh, statements. Uh, statement number one is, I do agree with and plan on uh, defending the historical Christian view of same-sex relations. That is essentially this. Uh, historically, um, is that same-sex relations are not um, God's and have not been God's best practices uh, for our lives. And I plan on um, defending that and preaching that today. But I also want to say that even though um, I believe the Bible does not support um, same-sex relationships and marriage, etc., um, I want to say um, that I believe that a temptation in and of itself is not sinful. Okay, how many know that we are all tempted in many ways. The Bible actually says that, that you know, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and, and it says in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. So we're all tempted in many ways. Being tempted by something in and of itself is not sin. So if this is like a struggle for someone's life, I'd, I just want to, I guess, remove some of the stigma and the shame. In my opinion, it is the giving of oneself over to that temptation where things become a problem. So here's the point. If, you're, if you struggle with same-sex um, attractions um, and you are walking that struggle out in obedience to Christ, what are you? You're a Christ follower who has a struggle. Welcome to the club. Okay? Welcome to the club. If you're, if you're a Christ follower and you're walking that temptation out in obedience to him, you're, you're a Christ follower with a temptation, just like the rest of us, okay? So I want to say this. You, because um, I want to, I'm preaching this message, and I've had this ideal in mind. I'm, of course, I'm trying to cover a lot of different types of people and different types of backgrounds and how do we as a church and how do, um, but I've had this ideal in mind, and my, my ideal in mind for this message is what, what is the 16-year-old or teenager or young person sitting in the room who is struggling with same-sex attractions, what are they supposed to do? And so what I want to do is try to remove some of the shame of that. I want to say this, you are not an abomination. The Bible talks about certain things as, you know, they're not good. Um, you are not something wrong, or, and you are not someone wrong. You have a temptation, okay, just like all of us. At the end of this message, I want to answer two questions. What should the person who is a Christ follower do um, who has this temptation? Number two, I want to answer this question. How should we as a church family interact with people who are tempted in this way? So um, I want to take some time. Um, I love theology. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I love the Bible. I've listened to like lots of messages on this subject, and it's like, believe me, it's more than you even want to hear. So, um, but I love the Bible. I love theology. Um, and I think I have, a, as a pastor, a responsibility to unpack the scriptures, unpack the Bible. Um, I want to do some theological framework and some groundwork for why I believe the Bible does not teach um, an affirming view of same-sex relationships. 
So today, what I want to do is I want to answer three of the most common arguments given in support for same-sex relationships. Um, there, there are some good ones. There's probably anywhere from six to ten pretty good questions. To be honest, I've, I've looked at some of the, the questions that people are like, well, what about this? And it's like, good question, great question. I, I, I really appreciate um, the question. So there's probably six to ten really good questions um, for people who defend um, uh, same-sex relationships. Um, I'm going to take three that I think are kind of the most, in my opinion, the most important, but um, perhaps that's subjective to my, to my opinion. So I'm going to take three of them today. Again, we couldn't do a whole comprehensive thing here because it would take weeks to do that. Okay, so argument number one that people uh, use to uh, teach or um, defend same-sex relationships is this. Argument number one, Jesus never mentions it. Is argument number one. It is true that Jesus never specifically mentions homosexuality. It is true that he never does. Um, and some would infer by that that it's a um, auxiliary subject. It's not central to the gospel. It's not really something that is like that important. Okay. Um, he doesn't specifically mention it. that. Is true. Um, I wish he had. <laughs> in fact, um, especially as a pastor in, in uh, 2023, I wish he had. And in fact, I wish he had thoroughly talked about it and thoroughly explained what a Christ follower should and should not do in regards to same-sex um, relations. Uh, how many know that Jesus um, did often talked about um, uh, sexual relationships? He talked about adultery. Um, he talked about sexual immorality, um, which in other many translations is translated as fornication, which, by the way, fornication is just sex outside of marriage. That's what fornication is. But the word fornication or sexual immorality in the New Testament is also a catch-all for a lot of things um, in, in the Bible. So, um, but basically sex outside of marriage. Now, what is marriage? What is this union and um, why is it holy? Um, marriage is kind of like, um, the, in fact, the younger generations, the Gen Zers and what is the it's Gen Zer and whatever, the, the, the newest two generations, I don't know, um, and I guess millennials, yeah, they have a very low view of marriage, like not a lot of faith in it for probably some good reasons. And to be honest, I want to say this, uh, in a Christian world, oftentimes we kind of like idolize marriage, like this is the pinnacle of Christian experience. And I just want to say the marital experience is not um, a superior to the single experience. You're not less of a Christian because you don't have mar- you're not married and have you know, 2.5 kids. I don't know how you have a half kid, but you know what I mean. Okay. We kind of do glorify, um, we do glorify um, marriage in, in the church world. In fact, we have a singles ministry here at this church, but... You know, the goal of the singles ministry is not like, get y'all married. We're just going to get you. That's not the goal of the singles ministry. Go, you can go on the website and see the goal. The goal of the singles ministry is actually to pursue Jesus and to, um, it's singles getting together and pursuing Jesus together. That's the goal of the singles ministry. So I just want to say marriage oftentimes is, is um, idolized and we think it's like the pinnacle and, and people who aren't married are lesser than. So, but I don't, what is marriage? I don't have time to fully unpack what marriage is. Um, but essentially, let me say this, marriage is not two committed people living together and marriage is not whatever the government says marriage is. What is marriage? Marriage is a covenantal covenant, covenantal union with God at the center. 
That's what marriage is. It's a covenantal union with God at the center. And it doesn't solve all your problems. In fact, it probably creates more problems than it solves. I'm just kidding. <laughs> By the way, it doesn't fix sexual problems. It doesn't, I mean, it, it actually, uh, in some ways, challenges you to be more like Christ than you would have otherwise been because why you're, you're really interacting and living close with someone and they're able to see all your weaknesses. So, but I would add, it's a covenantal union um, with God at the center. And I would add, it is a covenantal union with two sexually different people, sexually opposite people. Uh, again, I don't have time to go into all this, but if you look at the story of creation, because God talks about um, um, uh, marriage, really, in the second chapter, um, bring Adam and Eve together in the second chapter of Genesis. And in the story of creation, you see um, God creates the heavens and the earth, the land and the sea, the light and the darkness, male and female. You see this, these, these um, opposite things happening. And then you have a woman who is, um, she's the same, but different, right? And it's at the crescendo of creation that he brings male and female together and institutes, the, God is, you know, ordains the first marriage. But here's what Jesus said, um, just speaking about marriage in Matthew 19, verses three through six. <clears throat> Some of the Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Jesus said this, haven't you read? We'll come back to that statement. Haven't you read? That's an important statement. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, uh, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, again, that's the covenantal union um, with God at the center. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, um, when Jesus asked about marriage, Jesus does reference Genesis 2, 24, and he includes the words male and female. Okay, so um, he does, I just want to say that like, he, no, he didn't talk about um, homosexuality in particular and, and, and highlight that. But he did, he did say, you know, he did make a definition of it. But I also want to point out, so the question is, why didn't Jesus ever mention it? I want to also point out that um, Jesus' ministry, um, in Jesus' ministry, same-sex relationships were unlikely to come up. Someone might say, Pastor Kurt, what are you talking about? In the Greco-Roman world, they definitely had um, same-sex relationships. So why, what do you mean it wouldn't come up? Well, that is true that in the, Gre the Greco-Roman world, in that, in that time, um, uh, homosexuality was something in that world. But what you need to remember about Jesus' ministry is that Jesus never traveled outside of Judea. He actually stayed within a, he walked a lot, but he stayed within a very uh, small geographic location. In fact, Jesus said in, in Matthew 15, 24, he says, my ministry is to the lost house of Israel. Jesus' earthly ministry was actually to the Jews in the lost house of Israel. Um, it was Jesus' followers who were supposed to take his message to the ends of the world. So um, the reason why it wouldn't have really come up in Jesus' ministry, because he was primarily dealing with Jews, is because the Jews were already following the law and the prophets. And um, in fact, Jesus, let's look back at this scripture. It says, haven't you read? So when, when they ask Jesus the question about divorce, Jesus says, haven't you read? What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the law. They were under the law. Okay, so this was not a, um, 
The law had specific prohibitions already on same-sex relationships. So the Jews at that time, they're not, they weren't debating, like, is this a holy practice or not? They had their law, and it was clearly spelled out in the law. The apostle Paul did go to the Gentiles, right? He traveled outside of the Jewish world. And the, how many know that the Gentiles didn't have any of the Levitical laws that the Jews did? And how many know that Paul did talk about this because he encountered it? Paul did encounter it because he traveled through the Roman world. Um, Jesus didn't really talk about it. I don't think he needed to talk about it because he was called to the lost house of Israel. And the lost house of Israel was what? Under the law. And they had the Levitical laws already. Which, so that's point number one. Why didn't Jesus bring it up? Um, I think that's a good reason why Jesus did not bring it up. Although I do believe um, by him not mentioning it, it doesn't just kind of erase everything else. Now, that brings us to point number two, and this is a good question, and I love it. Um, Pastor Kurt, we as Christians, we're not under the law. We're under grace, right? Didn't Jesus redeem us from the law? I love that question. It's a good question. So argument number two, we are not under the law. Good question. How many know that you and I, as Gentile believers, we do not observe everything in the Old Testament. That is true. We don't observe everything in the Old Testament. Um, and so, and, and Leviticus 18, let me just highlight this and we'll talk more about it. Levit Leviticus 18 um, had many, by the way, read all of Leviticus 18. If you're taking notes, write this down. Right, Leviticus 18. Read it all. But Leviticus 18 had many sexual prohibitions. And so the, the children of Israel, they, they came out of Egypt. And God said to the children of Israel, don't practice any of the, the, the ways of the Egyptians. You're, I'm bringing you into the promised land. So you're coming to the wilderness. I want you to, so God's teaching them the way to live. And he gives them all of these laws, these new things that they are supposed to do and not do. And it says this in Leviticus 18, 22. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman that is detestable. Okay, so this is part of the law that God gave to Moses. But are we as Christ followers no longer under the law? Well, let me answer that in, in two ways. Number one, if, if you read the entire chapter of Leviticus 18, I bet you will find that there are very agreeable commandments in Leviticus 18. Okay, so for example, um, let, we're going to read the verse right before Leviticus um, 18.22 and the verse right after Leviticus 18.22. All right, so this is Leviticus 18.21. And I just want you to know if you think we're under this still. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the, the name of your, the Lord your God, um, name of the Lord your God, I am the Lord. How many think that's a good command? <laughs> I think that still applies to us today. I don't think you should sacrifice your children to false gods. Amen? I think that has tons of significance in our current age. Okay? Um, that's very agreeable. Um, let's read the verse right afterwards, and we'll see if you think it's agreeable. Leviticus 18.23. It says this, Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourselves with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is perversion. How many agree with that statement? How many think that's perversion? I, I would say you are defiling yourself in, in sexual immorality if you're having sex with an animal. And that's a great command. And they were coming out of Egypt where maybe that was a practice. I don't know. And God's saying, hey, I'm laying some groundwork for um, holy sexual relations and what I consider to be unholy sexual relations. Okay. 
And so those seem agreeable to me. Now, let me take a scripture that I'm pretty sure you don't follow, because this is the question. What do we, what do we, we're not under the law. What do we follow? What don't we follow? Uh, Leviticus uh, 19, 19. So next chapter, it says this. God says, keep my decrees. Uh, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Uh, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Now, I don't know about you. I don't actually know why God told him to do that. There's probably some amazing significance in that, and it probably points to Jesus. I don't know. Someone find that out and let me know. But I, don't, I think, like, I've got denim. I've got leather. I've got whatever the shirt's made of. Like, I'm mixing all kinds of stuff up in here, okay? So I don't know about you. Um, I don't know why God gave this command. But in our modern context, I don't know anyone except for maybe orthodox, hardcore orthodox Jews who follow this particular command. Okay, so we don't do everything in the law. How do we know which ones we should and should not observe? Which ones we should follow and which ones we don't need to follow? How many want to know? I'm going to tell you, okay? (laughs) Here's one good way to know. If you should follow a command in the Old Testament as a Gentile New Testament believer, is the Old Testament law reinforced by Jesus or one of the apostles in the New Testament? That's a good way to know. And Paul does, in the New Testament, specifically mention same-sex relationships. I also want to give another um, argument, what I call like the continuity argument. Um, how many know that... Um, there's, there, there, the continuity argument is this, that there's given prohibitions or it's at least not spoken of in the positive light in before the law, during the law, and in the New Testament. So you have scriptures um, all throughout. They're not like, there's not abundant. There's not a ton of them, but there are spread out all throughout the Bible. In other words, um, it's, it's hard to build a theology around one Bible verse, and it's probably dangerous to actually do that. I would, I would say. If you take one Bible verse and build a whole theology around it, it's probably dangerous to do that. But when you have verses that speak of something in a negative light over time through multiple covenants, you, you begin to have what I call uh, the continuity um, argument. How many know that at the cross, some things ended? Some things ended at the cross. Blood sacrifice would be one of those. Um, if you're going home and sacrificing your pigeons... You don't need to do that anymore, okay? <laughs> Jesus was the last blood sacrifice, okay? Some things ended at the cross. Some things changed through the cross. I will give an example of that. Um, I would say that the Sabbath was changed through the cross. In the Old Testament, it was a, is a command to rest once a week. I would say in the New Testament, the, the principle still remains, but how many know Jesus is our rest 24-7, 365 days a year? We rest in the finished work of the cross all the time. So I'd say the Sabbath was changed through the cross. And then there are some things that continued straight through the cross. Um, I'll give you an example. I think the tithe continued through the cross. Why? It was established under um, uh, Abraham before the law. It was um, reinforced during the law. And then it, was, it is enforced in the New Testament. <clears throat> so where are we at here? So was it reinforced by Jesus or one of the apostles in the New Testament? Paul does specifically mention it. And we have what I call the continuity argument. Okay. Argument number three. 
the biblical prohibitions are not talking about consensual adult same-sex relationships. This is an argument you might hear a lot. Um, okay, the argument here is that the same, the type of prohibitions that the Bible talks about um, are not consensual adult relationships. It's actually talking about more of an oppressive relationship. Um, I would say that these verses probably include um, oppressive relationships. How many know that in the Bible there was, you know, arranged marriages, older, you know, much older people with younger people. There's slave and uh, master and slave. There's different dynamics that I'm sure were, were definitely happening um, throughout the Bible. And, and some people reason and argue that it's only talking about, it's only, um, it wasn't talking about consensual same-sex um, relationships. So let me give you two reasons why I believe that's not true. And I think one of them is just right here in Romans. I think it bears some evidence. Romans 1, 26 and 27, it says this. Um, read the whole chapter of Romans 1. It's just talking about the condition of humanity. It says this, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged, their, um, exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations uh, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, notice um, they were inflamed with lust for one another. The Greek word there, one another, literally means mutual. So the idea here is this is not an oppressive one-way, non-consensual relationship. The idea here is that people are lusting after one another. And so I think, I think Romans, and Paul certainly would have had an opportunity to make that distinction. So that's, that's reason one, number one, I don't think that's true. The re second reason I don't believe it's true is because um, whenever the Bible speaks about same-sex relationships, it without exception speaks about them in a negative light or prohibits them. Okay, we don't, have, we don't have in Scripture one example of this distinction being clearly made. And so I think that that um, particular argument does not hold water. Okay, we actually have other theologies that we believe with less of a foundation. Let me give you an example. We mentioned one earlier, divorce. Does God hate divorce? Yes. Uh, they asked Jesus, Jesus, can anyone divorce their wives for no reason? And Jesus said, it's because of the hardness of your hearts that law was given. It wasn't so from the beginning. So God's clearly against divorce. Well, can you get a divorce? Well, actually, there are some other scriptures that talk about uh, you should only get divorced in, in certain, um, under certain conditions, under certain, certain circumstances, right? So the Bible does provide, in certain circumstances, um, divorce. And so God's against divorce, but it also says this. Um, let me give you another theology that I think has less of a theological foundation. And this is a hot topic, but how about this one? Women pastors, right? We at City Light Church, we, we believe it's, it's fine and good. If, if a woman has a call on her life to be a pastor, we believe that God um, can, can uh, call them to be pastors. That's what we believe. But I have many well-meaning, genuine uh, friends who are in other denominations who read some scriptures out of um, Corinthians and be like, well, it says here that, you know, women shouldn't be, they, maybe they can lead, but can they be a pastor? Um, I just say that to say there's certain scriptures and topics where there's some doubt cast on it and there's some debate in that. But here what we have is a Again, a continuity through scripture. It's never spoken of in a positive light. 
it's always spoken of in the negative light, and it, and it speaks of uh, prohibiting them. And this distinction of it being consensual or non-consensual um, is never made. And I think that is a, uh, just not enough of an argument to, to change um, my opinion. Okay, point number four. How are we doing here on time? Point number four. Aren't people born with same-sex attraction? If so, why would God not want them to be happy? If you struggle with same-sex attraction, maybe you have felt that way as long as you can remember. And I can't answer that question of why you feel that way, why someone you know might feel that way. Maybe it is like I, I have no recollection of having heterosexual attraction. I only have recollection of having uh, homosexual attractions. Uh, I can't answer the... I mean, perhaps if I sat with someone and heard their story long enough, I could maybe point to some reasons. Was it... Is it nature? Is it nurture? Um, I believe sometimes it is environment. Sometimes it is trauma. Sometimes it is um, certain personalities that are perhaps more predisposed to uh, same-sex attraction. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. But I, this is what I do want to say. Just because something does feel natural to you does not mean that we should give ourselves to it. Okay? Let me give you an example of this from my own life. When I feel angry, sometimes I want to punch people. <laughs> Should I give myself to that? <laughs> yes. How many have ever given into that before? It doesn't usually go well, by the way. Um, <laughs> there's this, there's this uh, guy on the street we live on, and I don't know why. He's had this gigantic dirt pile in the street for like two months, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. I'm like, get rid of the dirt pile. And then it rains like crazy, and there's mud all over the street. And so I'm like, I'm tempted to just put my car in four low and drive over the top of that thing. You know what I'm saying? Okay. I'm just saying, I have a natural desire to like want to mess with that guy now. <laughs> Do I mess with him? No. I'm, I drove over a little bit of it, though. Okay. <laughs> Um, so, just because something feels natural to you, does that mean you give it to it? Okay, now listen, as a straight man, as a straight man, I have natural, innate desires to think that beautiful women are beautiful, and part of me want, is attracted to them. Do I act on that attraction? Should I act on that attraction? How many think that your pastor should act on that attraction if it's not my wife? If you, you don't, you better raise your hand if, if, you, if you want me to stay, you know, stay the narrow course here. Okay. No, no, I don't act on that attraction. Um, how many know that broad is the path to destruction, narrow is the path to life? This is the case with Jesus, but this is the case with living for God as well. And so um, to have a blessed marriage, narrow is, is the pathway forward. So here's the deal. We all have natural inclinations that need submitted to Christ. Even heterosexual, natural desire that needs submitted to Christ. You can't just, you're not just running wild. Like, oh, I'm, I'm heterosexual, so I can do whatever I want. No, it's actually a pretty narrow path, is it, is it not? Okay, so um, coming to the close here of this message, um, just because something feels innate, feels natural, doesn't mean you sh we should give ourselves fully to it. Um, I think that, that is pretty evident. I want to play a quick video as we um, get ready to, to conclude here of a man who um, 
has really zero heterosexual attraction. A Christian man, a man who loves the Lord, a man who loves Christ. And I want just you to hear his um, talk real briefly about um, how he um, deals with that. So go ahead and roll the video. When we think about the question of why God might ask two people who are of the same sex and desire to be in a monogamous sexual relationship with each other, why might God ask those people not to be in a relationship with each other? I think one of the, one of the most helpful things we can ask is why might it be that God is calling someone to say no in order to say yes to something better? Because God's no's are not given to us simply because God is a mean, sovereign cop who likes telling us that we can't do things. God's no's are given to us because he has real and good purposes designed specifically for us. And when he says no, he's guiding us away from things that are not part of those best purposes that he has for us. And certainly in my own life, there are times when I have experienced God's no with regard to same-sex relationships as something that felt mean. It felt like it was taking away from me something that I wanted. And yet the longer that I live in obedience to Jesus in the realm of my sexuality, the more I find that there are things that I get to say yes to as a single person that I wouldn't get to say yes to if I had entered into the kind of sexual relationship that I so often found myself wanting. And I wonder if maybe it is in fact the loving heart of God that causes him to say no to us because he keeps wanting to nudge us more and more toward the good he has for us that's so much better than all the things that we thought that we needed in order to be happy. I believe that some of the people with the greatest reward in heaven will be people who had an intense desire for same-sex relationships, but out of love and devotion for their savior, laid that down at his feet. I don't, I don't wanna diminish the cost of what I'm proposing that people who have same-sex attraction do. I don't wanna diminish that cost. Um, I, am, I am saying and believing and proposing that the best way forward for someone who has zero heterosexual attraction is to live a celibate life out of faithfulness, devotion, and love to the Lord. And I don't want to diminish that cost at all. But I want to say, more importantly, God sees every time we say no to our desires and yes to him. God's, every time we say no to pornography and yes to him, God sees it. And I believe there's a reward to it. Every time you're getting a little too close to someone of the opposite sex at work, and you create boundaries out of honor for your covenant, I believe God sees that and there's a reward connected to that. And I believe God will never forget any sacrifice that anyone lays down to follow him. Jesus said this in Mark uh, 10, 28, and 30. It actually starts with Peter. It says, then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mother, children, and fields 
along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. When you and I lay down our sexuality for the sake of following Jesus and for the gospel, God sees it and God is our exceeding great reward. I know that it, it's a sacrifice for everyone. None of us are like not in this boat. We're all in this boat together to lay down our sexuality before Christ. I know it's a sacrifice, but I do want to say this. When you sacrifice for Christ, he will give you anything. He will give you far better than what you, could, uh, you possibly gave up. He'll, your life will be better than you could possibly imagine. I want to say to, the, <clears throat> to perhaps the person sitting here, the person who may be listening later on to this message, um, if you are same-sex attracted and you're, you're at the crossroads, one thing I can tell you that is if you give yourself to it, the temptation won't get better. If you give yourself to that, the temptation will only get worse. But if you lay that down at the, at the feet of Jesus for the sake of following Christ, I can promise you that what you've given up will be replaced by something far better. It says this in Jeremiah 29, 11, says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. This is for all of us. Plans to prosper and not harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. That's what I believe um, we should do. And I just want to say as a church, anyone and everyone is welcome to come sit in these seats. Whether you agree with what I've said and are, are completely in this lifestyle, anyone's welcome to come sit in these seats. But someone like that, that video we just watched, someone like that who is walking out, who obviously has a, a real love and devotion for Christ and is walking that out um, in following Christ, that person isn't in sin. They have a temptation, but they're not in sin. A person like that, the sky is the limit here at this church. They can be involved. I'd, I'd let that person lead stuff. Like, I'd let that person preach up here, honestly, because of their love and devotion to the Lord Jesus. So I just want to say... Of course, anyone's welcome, but the sky's the limit for people who are submitting their lives to Christ and obedient to him, just like the rest of us. Amen? Why don't you guys stand on your feet? I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll close this message. Jesus, we love you. I thank you for every person here, for the amazing plan, purpose, and destiny, Lord. Lord, uh, I ask for a grace on this church, Lord. And I'm not saying we're good at this, but I'm asking for the grace, Lord, to be able to extend your love and kindness to people who live in a way that we don't agree with. God, would you help us to become a family for people who are giving up family? For people who are making a sacrifice, would you help us become that family, Lord? People who are, who are passing up sensual desires in this present life. God, would you help us to be the family that they need in the future, Lord? And I just pray for any people sitting here that maybe this has been a struggle for you in the past. Maybe it's a struggle for you now. I just pray grace over you right now. God loves you so much. He has amazing plans for you. He's with you. We just remove shame, condemnation, and guilt off of you right now because we thank you, God, that you have grace and love and amazing plans for that person's life. Lord, we love you. We thank you for today. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you guys.